What do creative people living in the Florida Keys, like us, who have full-time jobs in order to pay bills, what do you do in your free time to exercise and use your creative brain and feed your creative soul? That's the question, and this podcast will provide answers. My name is Nancy Truesdale. Welcome to Creatives in the Keys. Welcome to Creative in the Keys. This is Nancy Truesdale, and I have the pleasure today to be with a tremendous local artist, Mr. Dave Fader. Dave, I have been really looking forward to this opportunity to talk to you because in the 15, 16 years that I've been in the Keys, I've heard your name and seen you perform, heard you perform, and really am um, thrilled to get to be here with you today. So thank you. Can I say one thing? Yes, please. <laughs> It's, um, maybe it would change your introduction actually, but, but I, I, I find it, I'm trying to say this nicely. Go for it. I find it, I I find it kind of diminishing to be referred to as a local artist Ah. because I am an artist and I live here in the keys. I choose to live here, but, um, my music is played worldwide and I, I am, my actually my motto is kind of be global play local ah. and the reason i do that is that so many people when they say oh let's get a local guy to do this or that immediately on the um let's say the the audience or the the purveyor of the talent would think that they were getting less. I understand completely. Right. If you so, lived in Nashville, I wouldn't say a local artist. Right. If somebody said, oh, Nashville artist. But so, yeah. so years ago, Good many, many, you. you're welcome. Many years ago. And that's like a note to artists. Um, many years ago, a record company, one of the first people that ever picked up my first record, actually my first CD. Um, he used to always, uh, all the information that he put out about me said um, something like, I don't remember exactly what it was, world, uh, something like Big Dick used to say, world famous, you yes, know, whatever. Yes, yes. It was something like that. And, and, and when, like, if you're, in, if you're in New York, I would play in New York, and they say, well, where are you from? Well, I'm from the Florida Keys. I live there. Um, well, where do you play? I play everywhere. And, uh, and I'm willing to play more places than everywhere. But I, I notice that sometimes people say, well, you know, this guy's a local artist. I, I feel, and maybe it's just uh, something that rubs me the wrong way. But, but when I hear that, for example, I have other musician friends who go, well, yeah, we're just local artists. Well, does that mean that you don't dress nice for the gig and take care of your equipment and practice, you know, 12 hours a day for a four minute performance, you know, it it doesn't necessarily in other people's minds, but in my mind, it kind of it diminishes. And so, so if I happen to be playing at a restaurant, which I still do, I enjoy playing it for sunset at different places. And it's not necessarily my first choice to be setting up my stuff in the heat. But once I'm playing and people are listening to it and I'm able to touch them in that way, that's great. However, it's interesting because I always feel like like I have to get out of that mindset of being, you know, just the guy that's that's the you know guy who lives around the corner and is coming to play. Because if you do that, 
then you don't reach for the apex of what you could be as a as a performer. For example, there's a lot of people, and I'm, and and my artist visual artist friends don't take this the wrong way, <laughs> because there are a few very very famous artists down here that do this. But when my musician friends and I talk, they say, "What's the gig tonight that you're going to?" Oh, it's a you know it's a great gig. I'm getting on a plane. I'm going to wherever and playing a gig. Say, so, great, you know what what kind of a thing it is? They go, "Well, it's really just painting fish." So that's kind of code for it's tourist music. You're playing something that they expect, like something that sounds trop rock or whatever, right. or or islandy, yeah. etc. And very often people, because I live here, will say, "Well, you live here," and they'll hire me for a gig. And I always got into the I got into the habit in the last. 15 years of saying, have you heard my music? Well, I assume you just play, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, artists that are typically known for this. I go, well, no, I actually don't play cover music. I don't play other people's music unless it happens to hit me and a a beautiful arrangement might come out of or it might be in. But, you know, in general, I don't do that. And, well, you, of course, know this song by blah, blah, blah. And I go, not necessarily. And it's not what I spend my time. I mean, if I have, let's say on a typical day, I have seven hours to rehearse. Aside from my actual show, I'm very serious about my practice routines. I'm generally not practicing songs that were written by other people because I have so much of my own stuff. Not that I don't stand on the shoulders of everybody else who's uh, created this kind of art in the past. I do, and I acknowledge that every minute. However, when somebody in their mind... So so if somebody was going to book me for a show, a concert, let's say, they say, oh, well... Well, uh, we want you to come and play this festival. Which Jimmy Buffett songs do you play? You know, and I love Jimmy Buffett and sure. I love his music. Of course. But I don't play his music. Because you're Dave Fader. You play your music. Well, I, I play what hits me in the moment. And in fact, that brings me to an interesting point. People say, well, how do you keep your art real? How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it? Well, I'm not capable of not doing that because when I sit down to play, I may have a set list. My wife usually, you know, helps me come up with a song, you know, for a particular... I've come up with a group of songs of my own. Because I could, you know, I could probably play for 10 hours without repeating <laughs> myself of just songs that I've written. Music, instrumental music, not even vocal songs, which sure. I don't do that much of anymore. I get in trouble when I speak over the microphone. So even if I have that happening, when I sit down, I try to let the vibe of the room and the people that are there hit me in back and forth a little bit, even while I'm setting up, seeing people, seeing what's happening, whatever happened during my week or day. And and that's what happens musically. Maybe there are songs that I thought about playing. Maybe they're not. Maybe there are versions of songs. There are always versions that have never happened before and will never happen again. Yes. It's just like if I was... It may be painting fish, but it's a different fish each time, you yes. know. Or it may be... For example, the style of music that I'm interested in now is 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 this mostly is this Spanish Andalusian music, although that's not exclusively what I do, but I'm heavily influenced by it. But that music is traditionally improvisational, yeah. so you have a basic form. It's like if you're doing a haiku or something, right? Yeah. You know, but the actual content changes is, time. It changes and the delivery changes and the timing changes and the the key might be different every day. There's 12 keys, you know, and yeah. not counting the minor keys that you can play any song in. And so when you get too comfortable, like I've always, I used to be 
in awe of people who could play in a rock band and play, you know, uh, Sweet Home Alabama every night exactly yeah. the same way. Yeah. I am not capable of that yeah. for a lot of reasons. One is my brain doesn't work that way, memorizing things. I just try to make it so that if I hold my instrument, I'm capable of whatever's coming, whatever through the universe and having it, having my body, mind tuned well enough so that it can come out my hands and be delivered and shared. What, what I think is for me would be false would be to just memorize songs and play them every night because that's to me not artistic. That's background noise. Well, it's being a Xerox machine. Yeah. It's yeah. not noise. I mean, I. Or background sound, maybe. Well, I, like I said, there are people that I know, even original musicians who play their own stuff the same way every night. And they may even use an iPad as a backing track, sure. which I think is fine for them. You know, I can't do it. I won't do it because then I'm. You're locked in. At the mercy yeah. of that. My canvas has to be able to stretch and change and stop and start and speed up and slow down. Now, if I'm playing with a band, I um, do yeah. constrain yeah. myself a sure. little more. Sure. But if I'm playing with my preferred band, they know exactly what's happening. And we are all exactly. in tune with each other. And we have a conversation. And that conversation is something that means way more to the people who are involved in it. From a listener's point of view, it has way more value. And some people do appreciate it. Some people are touched by it. Other people aren't. You know, they'll, they'll, they will have heard us play for, or me play for however long. Then they'll walk up and they'll say, hey, can you play blah, blah, blah. And, and sometimes I'll do it because I realize that it's going to make them happy. And if I think that I can do a version of that, that will be, that will be also artistic. I'll do it. You know, I, I spent two years working for these Jimmy Buffett projects and Jimmy wanted yes. me to do this stuff for him. And I said, I don't play your music. You know that, right? Yeah. Cause we've known each other for a long time. And he, and he says, he says, yeah, Dave, I don't care. I want you to <laughs> teach these guys how to do it. So what was, what was your role on that project? So, uh, it's very convoluted how it came up, but basically a bunch of friends. We have, I have a friend of mine who is a, uh, really well-known, highly skilled arranger. He arranges stuff for Broadway and, Cool stuff. Really amazing arranger. Uh, his name is Chris. And, and I have other friends who are producers. And they all met each other. And we do this circle. And we all kind of facilitated each other. And Jimmy was involved from other ends. And, I mean, it, it went all it went as far as Carl Hyacin on one end and <laughs> Jimmy Buffett and Chris and Key's characters on the other end. And, and people whose names probably wouldn't appreciate being mentioned. But I'm just going to say that the way it worked out is I ended up sitting in a, you know, living room and also in a bar with Jimmy and him saying, are you going to join the team? Are you going to join the team? What exactly do you want from me? Basically, what he wanted was for me to help the actors be comfortable playing songs on stage that are versions of his songs that work with the musical. Gotcha. And it was really fun. And the people were all amazingly talented. I mean, I was blown away working with these Broadway producers and writers and and actors and singers and dancers and choreographers and set designers who were the top of their game I was awestruck the whole time I was there but I was also in my element sure because everybody was a professional and they all worked very hard I, I have to tell you that there are people that you deal with in the quote art world who aren't 
necessarily as dedicated to the art part of their art. They just kind of like, well, how can I be famous and make a living? It's yes, like, yes. Well, you know, you can paint fish. Yeah. You know, and, and like my, like I said, I know people who paint fish, but they do it artistically. And they do a really good job. And there are other people who are artisans and they, you know, build little toy tiki huts and put a fish on it. And that's their, you know, and, and nothing against them that's because right. there's a, there's definitely room in this world for tchotchkes. But that's just not your walk. It's it's not what I want to spend my time doing because yeah. life is short. Yeah. So I want to circle back to, to the beginning. You're yeah, saying, you know yeah. why? Because I think you just gave me and any other artist a tip that when you pigeonhole or put yourself in a box or put yourself with a label, i.e. Mm-hmm. local, yeah. you're not allowing yourself to stretch and be the best, fullest, most, you know, the artist that you could be. Yes. And? And if you want to put yourself in the right headspace as an artist, then use the words and terms that stretch you like you just emphasized. Right. Yes, I agree. However, if you want to get good at anything, mm-hmm. there's a couple of things that come to mind when you say that you have to be specific. Like, for example, if I want to learn how to do a particular type of harmony on the, excuse me, on the guitar and, and, and mind you with music, playing a musical instrument, one's mind is and one's spirit is always light years ahead of one's physical capabilities of having it <laughs> happen on the instrument. I mean, I've written songs that take me decades to be able to play. I understand. But they're still there. The songs that I'm playing, some of them I, I wrote when I was 11. But the other thing I wanted to say is that, so you, so you have to specify in order to learn. But as far as kind of going back to like, if you want to, and everybody defines success differently. True. To me, success is being able to express myself and and share that with other people and hopefully allow them to to have a moment of spiritual enlightenment sure. or, or, and I mean really enlighten yeah. them, lighten up their day a little bit, you know, yeah. and which is what I think all forms of art and music can do. And it can also challenge you to think about things in a different way than you did before. And, and I find that that's really great. But what I was going to say is a really good friend of mine said this to me once. He said, there are so many people in the world, billions of people in the world that your art only has to, to, like if you appeal to one out of every, let's say, 10,000 people, sure. you still have enough people to have you make a living. So do you, he said this to me this way, he said, do you think that in a room of, let's say, 1,000 people, you could sell one CD? This is back when I made my first batch of CDs before I sold one. And I said, yeah, I, I probably could. He goes, well, that's all you need to do. Because there are so many people in the world that once you find your market for your music, it's an interesting story. Recently, a friend of mine took a one-minute clip of a video I did years ago, probably seven years ago. A friend of mine, a videographer, made a video, and of you know, which is one of the higher-quality videos that I have of a song that was done on one of my albums. And we took a minute of it, and as an experiment, he allowed the, a Facebook algorithm to market it to the people it thought it should go to. Uh-huh. Well, I got a, a half a million views within less than a month in South America. And why? Because my music sounds like that stuff. Because I grew up listening to tangos and Argentinian music and flamenco and and bossa novas and things like that. So, okay, well, duh. You know? Latin American so, people yeah, Latin, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because, probably because the guitar was invented in Spain or whatever, the Latin American music 
for guitar has evolved to a much higher level than it has in other cultures. Yes. You know, nowadays there's a lot of different styles of guitar. There's percussive and there's all kinds of things that people do that are amazing. But I think harmonically and, and, you know, as far as like melodic and harmonic expression, there's a pretty high level, which is why Andre Segovia, you know, he came from that school, you know, the Spanish gypsy flamenco kind of school, even though he played classical guitar, legitimizing instrument. But so, so yeah, so you, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself, like you said, However, you can specify and yes. you can you can direct yourself towards because if you want to learn anything, you have to take it down to its empirical thing, right? Sometimes if you're learning a part of speech, you have to you have to take everything else away from it. With music it's the same way. I don't know about brush strokes in painting, but I know that I've spent whole months on the angle of how my finger hits a string and going boing. And you have to do that for every string and every fret position to get things to happen. Because when people hear, you know, if people hear dig 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 on the guitar, they don't realize that each one of those notes may have taken a year. For you to learn to manipulate. Yeah. yeah. So when people say, well, I'm paying you by the hour, I go, well, if you were paying me by the hour, <laughs> you couldn't afford me. Because many, many hours went into yeah. what made that Every one Every minute of music you hear a yeah. musician play yeah. could have represented thousands of hours. of practice. Yeah, yeah, maybe several lifetimes, yeah. you know, if you believe in that stuff. I'm already so engrossed. Um, I forgot to start at, like, one, Dave, what is your art? Two, and how did you get into it? When I was uh, very young, my parents were had the foresight to realize that a couple of things. One is they didn't want to teach me their prejudices, which they grew up with. They didn't want to teach me... How unique is that? I believe it. it is unique. Yeah. I think that, well, maybe not unique, but it's commendable yeah, yeah. that I, I realized as I was older that they did have their, not necessarily ethnocentric parts, but they definitely had their prejudices growing up World War II and all that kind of stuff, you know, during the civil rights and all that, you know, in, they both grew up in the city in New York area. My dad went into the military very young. He was uh, kind of, today they would have called him Aspergery. And um, he graduated high school at 16 and went into Carnegie Mellon and was one of the youngest people to be accepted. And then he went into the military because he felt like he should. And, you know, he was an engineer, chemical engineering stuff. But but my mother was a writer. She wrote children's books and did really well with children's books. Also worked as an editor for uh, CQ magazine, the ham radio magazine. Wow. She had a series called the V.V. Hartman series of books, which was kind of a Nancy Drew kind of thing. But she wrote a lot of things. She, she was very interested in um, Native American uh, culture and also the Underground Railroad. And so she wrote about all this stuff. She also wrote about some Middle Eastern things. But she, they, one of the many things that they did is they forced all of us kids, three kids in the family, to take piano lessons. I rebelled and I just, you know, I, I, I wasn't a good student. I'd bang on the piano. My sister took it farther. My brother probably took it farther. But what I did is I ended up with this... I mean, I did take my piano lessons at the smelly cat lady's house and everything, right? You know, everybody has the smelly cat lady teacher, you know, with the cats running across everything in the house, made your eyes water, you know, had the ruler to hit your hands. We had one really nice teacher, but I don't think I learned anything from her because she was too nice. But I ended up when I was probably nine or ten with a Honer guitar 
that had a little thing that if you wound one end, it would go, it would do, pop goes the wheel, but it had strings on it, which I think I pulled all off the first day. But then I ended up with this Sears Silvertone guitar, which I, I think I remember was $12, and it was a half-size guitar. My sister still has it. And we had this book of cowboy songs from Honer. still have it. I found it on my dad's stuff when he was moving years ago. And I learned every song in that cowboy book, which is little, you know, just beginner chords and stuff. I just, I still remember, you know. Self-taught. You taught yourself. Self-taught. I did have a teacher for maybe two days, a guitar teacher (laughs) who scared me because he yelled at me because I broke a string and he yelled at me because I didn't put the new string on right. He goes, I'm going to have to change the string and you've ruined it and that's the, you know. And and like to me, he might have been nice, but I interpreted it as, as him being scary. But I basically taught myself you know, guitar. I, I liked it. But I had a cousin, Richie, who just recently passed away. And I was visiting him. We used to go to New York and visit him. We were living in Pennsylvania at the time and uh, rural Pennsylvania. So the funny thing, so this was a very, very big impact for me. The local sheriff lived, you know, we had these huge yards. Everybody had hunting dogs and dog runs and stuff. And my dad was working in some plant there. But our neighbor, which was a bit of a walk, I used to escape from my room. I was probably nine or 10. I would climb out the window. It was this ranch style house. And I would run across the garden and across the lawn. And my neighbor, I remember Mr. Firo, who was the sheriff and the judge, probably everything, you know, small town. He had a band that would play in his barn. And I remember like sneaking and I would listen to them every night. And they had the, you know, the one string bass on the wash tub and banjos and guitars. And they all played in. Like a bluegrass type He was probably, I don't really remember the music, but he was missing some fingers, you know, but probably was also an amateur carpenter. Who knows? And, um... (laughs) But he played in these open tunings, which were, I don't know if you know what that means, but it's basically not a standard guitar tuning. And I was always fascinated by that. And he knew I was there. And I would I, I don't know how many times I actually did that, but it's a ingrained memory. And that really affected me how those guys were playing. And they were happy. And it was really interesting because I knew him as the neighbor sheriff person that felt bad for us because we didn't have hunting dogs, you know. <laughs> but later on, anyway, my cousin Richie, showed me some stuff and he was a a pretty talented guitar player and he showed me some more stuff on the guitar and I said you mean you can play above this you mean you can play up here there's notes up there and I mean all these little revelations I knew enough about reading music not on the guitar but on piano to know kind of what he was doing but uh I played drums in the high school band, and drummers were the you know they were the dumb ones. You know they oh, they didn't, cool. They were cool, but they were the dumb ones because they didn't <laughs> they didn't they didn't really have to learn how to read notes, just rhythms. You oh, know, and I see so your point. yeah. Um, and I I think I was probably a cut up in high school to a band, and and I, I wasn't a particularly good student. I was a yearbook photographer, so I skipped my classes to take pictures and things like that. But I always had a but guitar. Yeah, you went to engineering school. Yeah, so I always I, that's just because you're good parents. Well, it's a long story with that too. I mean, I. <laughs> tested well. I didn't do any homework in school, but I tested well. So the SAT scores, oh, you should, like, like I should. Anyway, um, I was a miserable failure in engineering school. Um, (laughs) But uh, not because I didn't like engineering. I mean, I loved electronics. I built stuff. I built my first TV when I was 13, you know, from an old army kit that some guy had. Yeah, but but I mean... Most people don't do that. Well, the problem is, so so if you're an inquisitive kid and you're encouraged to do things to follow, which my parents did, it can... 
be really, and I recognize this in other kids too, in many kids, is that just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it. Oh, so true. Because there's so many avenues. So I could have, you know, if you look at the other room here, you'll see that, that it's an electronics lab. Yeah. I still do that stuff just because I'm the only one down here who does it. So somebody has a broken thing, I'll fix it for them. You, you go buy your own parts and come in and I'll do it okay. for you, you know. But um, That's not your passion. It's a Zen thing for me, like like doing electronics. is. Let's like plumbing, only it can kill you. But I'm interested in it. I, I used to design RF, you know, uh, radio frequency things, and I really liked it, and I studied it. I, I'm the kind of guy that when I'm interested in something, I just kind of, and I learn about it. And so that's the thing my parents taught me is that you can learn about anything you want. When I wanted to go to music school, though, they were aghast. And why? Why was that not? Well, I think that I think that they were of that uh, post-war thing where you have to have a job that has a secure living in music and art wasn't that we gave you music lessons so you would be well-rounded, not so you'd be a good person. Well, so that you would be a, a good person. I think they they instilled a lot of things in me. They instilled being a mensch, being a charitable person being somebody who treated other people well, no matter what, even though, and to try to not be bigoted and prejudiced, you know, because yeah. they had those things, but they did really well to try to not teach them because they recognized them in themselves, you know, and they hardly ever came out and they really worked hard to try to change these, not xenophobic or ethnocentric, there's another word for it, maybe fear-based Fear-based, fear of other cultures and things like that. You know, the Nazis just happened, you know. So there were Nazis. Now there's Nazis again. What's going on with that? But anyway, uh, so music was a way to temper that. And my sister, very, very educated. She just became a lawyer, by the way, recently uh-huh. at, in her 60s. Um, on her time? Works for the Innocence Project. Yeah. Oh, oh how and, cool yeah. is that? And my brother's a doctor. He uh, Family of chronic overachievement. Chronic overachievement. He's, a, he's a, actually a pretty world-famous shrink in the autism thing. He's written the book literally on floor play and developed video games for autism. for for autism wow. and and now he's working believe it or not as a he takes Palestinian and Israeli kids that are autistic to other locations and works with them. He's got a UN project he does. So so yes, we're a family of overachievers <laughs> and we're all very charity minded. Yes. Probably sometimes to the detriment of making a living, but really to me and I'm not like because it's not a horn toot, but it's it's one of those things where I feel like what we do there's there's a there's this reverse golden rule that I've always gone gone by, and the the common misinterpretation mistranslation of the golden rule is do unto others. That's not the golden rule. The golden rule, if you translate it, is do not do unto others what you would not have done unto yourself. It's passive. Yes. And it keeps you from having things like the Inquisition. Yes. Right? Yeah. So the Inquisition is, well, I, I think I would want to be burned at a stake if I didn't believe in this. I would want to be purged, right? Well, it's like, okay. So that's where those kinds of things come from. The, a passive kind of thing. So in a passive way, I feel like it's, you know, it's, I will present this, and if you want to take it, you may have it. So this is why ICE is there. You know, this is why. Ice. So not Immigrations Customs <laughs> Enforcement. Although I think we have to change our name because people run when they see our shirts. But uh, we were there first. Uh, so years ago, a teacher at the school that you work at, the, the National Endowment for the Arts had lost its funding, and the school had no arts 
supplies or music program, and they were at risk of losing everything. And she, this was Judy like, Justice. This was like 25 years 1994, ago? 1994. Yeah. And 1995, in April, she helped organize a, a... Mind you, I have done benefit concerts my whole life. Before that, I've always been involved in that kind of stuff. I just... I'm always happy to volunteer my time for that if I can afford it. You know, if I if I'm going to be in town, it's not going to cost me a lot of money because you know we have to pay our bills too. But uh, it has gone really far in that direction to the point where you know I have to ask myself, okay, well, if I can't buy a meal, then I can't do this. Yeah. So Judy, Judy out. Justice and got together with a bunch of local musicians, including Billy Davis and C.W. Called all these guys who were. Can we put together this concert and try to have some raffles? And uh, a woman named Jane uh, Van Fleet, who ran a travel agency, and all these people got together, and we put it together a concert at the Plantation Yacht Harbor, which is now the Founders Park. And that, over the years, blossomed into... I mean, we've given away over three-quarters of a million dollars already to arts and music scholarships, and but it's it's kind of... It's grown since then. My friend Ron Levy, who passed away a few years ago, Beth's was involved in the when the town was incorporated and they bought the yacht harbor and we did a survey with the town what does everybody want and one of the things everybody said they wanted was a was an amphitheater because you know we, if we had an amphitheater we'd have bands and stuff like that so our company it's a, another huge long story but we basically gifted the amphitheater to the town there's no taxpayer money in that that is private money that we you know badgered our friends into not really they they offered actually it was a guitar student of mine and another friend who wrote a check that basically paid for it. So, yeah, so it took a lot. It was a lot of consternation getting it done. People were saying, you know, a lot of screaming and yelling before they realized that they didn't have to pay for it. And and lots of great shows have happened there. And and the town owns it. It's a great venue and blah, blah, blah. But ICE was formed to build that, give it to the town, and also to bring art, music, dance, all art, but you know things that wouldn't normally be available down here in the islands to the public at free or no cost. And so, basically, we sell beer at our events and use that to subsidize the events, so we don't have to charge a lot of money. And we give all of the leftover money away to the kids. Now it's changed because as the school got more on its feet. As other monies came in and the endowment came back or wherever the school gets their money, less and less kids ask for scholarships and less and less teachers ask for things. And so we, you know, we would bug them for you. Well, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And so it's kind of switched now, like some of the local venues that we feel are good places for musicians who wouldn't have a place to play that needed infrastructure. They need PA. They need this. You know, we help them out with that kind of stuff. Um, since I'm an electronics guy, people dump broken crap here all the time. We'll fix it up and we'll give it away to kids. Guitars, amplifiers, PA systems, lights, everything you can imagine that people would throw out because it's broken. My company, me, we fix it and we, we gift it to these. And a lot of people, you know, sometimes we had a we had somebody donate a bunch of ukuleles to the Montessori school. They said, we, we want to buy Montessori school some ukuleles, but we want to write it off on our taxes. So can we buy them through and give them to your company and you can give them to them? Like, yeah, whatever. That works. You know, yeah. So we've been a vehicle whenever there's a, a not-for-profit event that like a charity fundraiser or something and they need a PA system or they need this or they need infrastructure or they need a place to do it. You know, ICE has been the one who... Not always, but sometimes, you know, they'll say, hey, can you do this for us? And of course we will. Now, 
what we try to do is is empower like if there's a local mixing engineer that needs a job then yeah you can use all the equipment but we would like you to pay the mixing engineer because guess what he needs to make a living too yeah yeah or, or the musicians that you're hiring for the event well yes they can volunteer their time but they get asked to volunteer their time for every single thing every time somebody gets a splinter right so you should make it reciprocal for them so let's say why don't you feed them sure why don't you you know what i mean make Something. it make it available yeah. um yeah. and and so one of the things that I'm the proudest of in this town, one of the things that I feel like my company has helped do is, and, and this has a lot to do with Ron Levy encouragement, he's a huge cheerleader for the arts, brilliant man too. One of the things I think we've accomplished is creating an environment that nurtures artists as opposed to devaluing them. Now, there's still a lot of devaluing. Like a lot of club owners, they know that they could just play the radio. Right. They also know that they can hire the the kind of, the guy who comes in from out of town who will right. work for beer. Yeah. But a lot of the club owners are a little more discerning now, and they know that if they pay a little bit, you know, more like a wage, like a real living wage, that their clientele is going to improve. Yeah. Some of them get it, some of them don't. Do you think ICE has been instrumental in well, I think that up? I think that ICE has insisted in a lot of instances that, like there were some musicians that had come down here to play that ICE facilitated shows for them. Oh, we're not going to charge anything. Well, if you work for us, you're going to charge something and we're going to pay you because we don't believe in that. Yeah. I don't believe in that. I've had many a stern talk with local musicians who came, like we've had, I'm, I'm not going to tell you specifics, but yeah. we've had gigs that paid a certain amount of money and, and musicians come into town and they work for an eighth of that and their music may or may not be good it could be horrible but it could be really good right. but that's what they worked for where they were from but they didn't bother to investigate what happens down here where the cost of living is very high and if you want to live here and be an artist you have to charge the status quo or you don't live down here right you have to have nine jobs and then how can you uh keep your art going and the reality for a lot of musicians is is they don't quit their day job for me, quitting my day job is not working locally as a musician and being on the road more and flying around to things, which I do a lot. But that's where the majority of my income comes from. It doesn't come from playing these local gigs. These local gigs are mostly practice for me. I mean, they pay something, sure. but they don't pay the mortgage. Yeah, yeah. So I think that ICE has been, not just ICE, but, but the group of artists that have uh, some integrity down here as far as like how they care about their fellow artists and there are a lot of them they encourage each other to keep the quality of their product up and to charge a fair price and the venues that don't pay a fair price and there are a few and i could mention them i won't but the musicians who agree to work there for a less than living wage they're cutting their own nose off despite their face and I know all the arguments for it. Well, they're not going to hire me unless I do this. Well, then you need to either up your game. You know, I mean, you can choose to do that, but it doesn't help. It doesn't help the status quo. It hurts it. Yeah. The same time we were talking about local artists, right? If you say, I have had people come up and they go, how does it feel being a starving artist? I go, do I look starving? Yeah. I'm not starving. I don't have that mentality. I never had that mentality. If I decide to be an artist and allow my art to facilitate more art and pay for my food, etc., then that's what I do. If I decided I wanted to starve, then I would starve. But I, that's not what I'm deciding. Yeah. And I don't agree with that 
stereotype. And I also don't agree with the obnoxious rock star stereotype, too. Almost everybody that I've met in the business who is wildly successful, Jimmy Buffett, for example, is a sweet, charitable man. Steven Tyler, who I've worked with, sweet, charitable man. Now, their TV persona might be different. You know, most people that I know who are very successful in the business, mind you, there are some people who are, there's always a bad apple. But in general, people who have made it reach their hands out and help other people do it because look, this is how I did it. That's why a lot of us, you know, when somebody comes for a a guitar lesson, and I I don't do it as often as I used to, but I used to teach a lot more. And sometimes they're they're younger, but most of my students are professionals now and they want to learn something, whatever, that they didn't know before. They have a little... I get that asked often, too. I get other professionals like, can I just come over and you can help me with this thing? Right. Sure. And the discussion sometimes goes towards, well, what do you charge for this? And what I want to say is is that old Don McLean song, what's this horse worth? Well, the more you pay, the more it's worth. So if you value yourself in the thing that you do and your time, like if I charge, for example, $2 an hour for everything I did, nobody down here could afford me. Nobody could afford me because the thousands and thousands of hours that go into what you do for three hours at a show, right? But you have to say, those are not billable hours. Those are me doing what I love. I get it. Establishing a value for your art is an important step in being an artist. This is great advice. Anyone trying to establish themselves in a creative field needs to think about this. Thank you so much, Dave. Dave. 